tell you um, a story this morning. Um, if I haven't had the chance to meet you yet, my name is Brian. Uh, I'm one of the pastors here, and I have the opportunity today to, to, to kick off and to start this new series that we're starting today called Mind Monsters. Now, if this is your first time hanging out with us today, if you haven't been to Fusion City Church before, let me say a, a warm welcome to you. We love new people. We get excited about meeting and interacting with new people. We're really, really glad that you're here. We, we can clap for new people. Can we do that? If you're a first-time guest today, man, we're excited that you're here, and we would love to have the opportunity to get to know you, um, and how we like to do that is if you'll take just a few minutes during your time with us this morning to fill out your connection card, uh, that's the, the bottom half of the portion of the, the, the program that you got when you came in, we call that a connection card. If you'll fill that out this morning and take that to the hub, that's the areas just, out, just inside the doors as you came in, uh, we have a gift there for you. Again, just our way of saying thanks for spending some time with us today. We, we're excited that you're here, and we want to honor you by giving you a gift. Uh, you can get that at the hub if you'll take your connection card there. Now, it's a great day to be here because we are starting a brand new series. It means you haven't missed anything. You don't have to catch up on anything. We're starting right from go today with a brand new series called Mind Monsters, and I want to start that series by telling you a bit of a story. But before I do that, Let's talk about a little bit about what a mind monster is, right? See, all of us, we, we have these things that, that tend to cloud our minds, these things that eat away at us, that, that torment us, that bother us from the inside. And I want to talk about one of those specifically this morning called pride. Pride is a monster that eats away at us from the inside out, and it's extremely dangerous, much like electricity, now, about a week or so ago, um, I was doing some work at my mom and dad's house, uh, and I wanted to add a couple of outlets for mom. So we're, we're redoing her laundry room, um, and she needed a couple of outlets on the wall that we just built. And, and so I got this great idea that I'd go under the house, and I'd find the box where we had done some work before, and I'd tie in um, the new lines to run the receptacles. And, and I got under there, and I realized that um, I had not yet cut the power off. Now, it was a really difficult crawl. Like, my mom's crawl space is really low. I had to scoot under some duct work, and it's really dirty. And I, I was already there, found the junction box that I was going to be working on. And I thought, you know, as long as you don't touch the wires, you'll be good. Like, just, you know, I had a buddy. He was outside the crawl space kind of yelling directions. Hey, man, like, just, you can do it. Just be careful. Like, just do one wire at a time. Like, you'll get it. Like, we, this is good. We can do this. I was like, all right, man, I, just, I don't want to crawl all the way back out. It was really hard to get here. I don't want to have to go through all that again. Let's just run the risk. Let's just, let's just, take, my, I'll just take my chances by wiring up this, this hot, electrically hot circuit. So, so I did what any good professional uh, electrician would do. <laughs> That's not true. Um, so, I, so I wired up the ground first, right? I, I got it in the ground. You're not going to get hurt. You're not going to get hurt touching ground anyway. No big deal, right? So, I, all right, good. Push that one back in the box. Worked my way over to the neutral. Got everything stripped out. Got them all. Got it connected. Push back up in the box. No problem. All right. Time to do the hot wire. Hey, buddies, take your time. Be slow. You got this. All right. So strip the wire, and, and I had a pair of insulated pliers. I thought no problem as long as you don't touch the metal. You're good. So I, I got the I got the two ends together, I had my pliers, and I went to, to twist the two wires together so that I could make the connection. And I don't know to this day what happened. 
I don't know if my hand got a little too far up on my plier to where I touched the metal. I don't know if my other hand slipped. I, I have no idea what happened. Here's what I do know. Electricity hurts, y'all. And not only does it hurt, but when you grab hold of a hot wire with a hand on a pair of pliers, your muscles contract. So you can't let go. And so here I lay, pinched under a crawl space, grounded because I'm laying on the ground, wet because I had to crawl under some condensating ductwork. So I'm wet, laying on the ground, touching ductwork, and holding on to a hot wire. And I learned a very, very, very important lesson that I hope that all of you can learn from my mistakes. You know, electricity, you can't really see it. But when it gets a hold of you, it hurts. <laughs> and much like electricity, there's this thing that all of us are going to encounter, because we all use electricity, that's very, very dangerous, but really, really, really hard to see. And that thing is called pride. And so today I want to talk about this thing that we can't see, but that has tremendous potential to have devastating effects in our lives. See, there's, I'm going to tell you another story. And it's about a man in the Bible. If you've spent much time in church, you, you might have heard of King David in the Old Testament. Now, King David did some pretty, some pretty awful things at one point in his life. He, um, he, he committed adultery. Or he, he saw a woman that was taking a bath. He was, he was lustful in his thoughts, decided that he wanted to take her for himself. And so because he's the king and he had lots of pull, he makes it happen, brings her into um, his home, does some, some awful things because she's married and he was... I don't know if he was married, but it was, she was married, so it was wrong. And so he kind of has his way with her. And then uh, it comes up that she's pregnant. And so David's like, oh, no, i got to figure out how, how, to, how to cover this up. And so David brings her husband home from the battle, hoping that he would have some time with his wife. And then he would think the child was his, the husband's. And that doesn't work because the, the guy, this woman's husband, has a tremendous amount of honor, and he refuses to, to spend time in his home while all of his, his friends and the other warriors are out fighting a battle. And so David institutes this plan to have him basically executed in battle. So David is kind of a third-party murderer at this point to cover up an adulterous affair, an illegitimate pregnancy, and then he has her husband murdered. So this is what David has going on. Now, here's the thing about David. David's the king. So he's exercising, he's using his position to cover up sin. Because surely, I mean, I know God's watching, I know God's not pleased with any of this, but, you know, I don't really want to get in trouble for all of this. My, my, I'll just do this thing, I'll do this my way, I'll cover this up, it'll be like it never happened if I can just take care of it. You know what that is? That's pride. I know what God says, but I'll do it my own way. I, I, I think I can fix this better than God can fix this. Instead of dealing with consequences, I'll just cover it up because I don't want to get in trouble. It's very I-centric. It's pride. And so because David is doing all of these things because he's too proud to take his lumps, too proud to suffer the wrath that he, that he, knows, is, he knows it's wrong, but he doesn't want to suffer any of the consequences. And so he uses his position to cover it up. He's proud. And so God sends a man named Nathan and here's the thing about pride. 
pride is really difficult to see in the mirror. And Nathan knows this. But God still wants to deal with David through Nathan. And so Nathan devises this plan. I'm going to tell David a story that's going to be about him, but he's not going to know it's about him. And so this is what Nathan tells David. Let's read it together. It's found in the book of 2 Samuel, chapter 12. And we'll start reading together in verse 4. Let me, let me set it up for us before, as you find it either in your Bibles or on you version. Let me set it up for you. Nathan tells David there's this really, really rich man who has all that he could ever want. And then there's a poor man who has one sheep to his name. Now, in Nathan's story, the rich man is David. David has all the sheep he could want, and sheep is code for women in this regard. And there's this one man, this one noble man, who has one sheep. And this is the man that David had killed and his wife, who's now pregnant with David's child. And so Nathan tells David this story. Now, there came a traveler to the rich man. So he he gets a guest into his house. And the rich man, he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guest who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who would come to him. So in other words, instead of this rich man who has all of these lambs that he can choose from, the rich man takes from the poor man to serve his guest that has come. Oh, David is livid about this. He's so angry. Watch this. Then, then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man. And he said to Nathan, as the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. You see, you see how emphatic? He's, he's angry. And he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. Nathan said, yeah. Here's the thing, David. You're the man. You're the man that's done this awful thing. You're the man that had all the women he wanted to choose from, yet you you chose to take from a man who only had one wife. Like, David, this story is not about some, this story is some dude I made up, but it's not some dude that I made up. David, it's you. And all of a sudden, David understands. Hey, oh, okay, now I see. You see, pride, much like electricity, it's really hard to see. But you can always see the effects of it. And so if, if we as, as followers of Christ, if we are going to, to combat this thing, if we are going to push back against pride, which is so difficult to see but is so dangerous, then we, then we have to have a weapon against pride. So, so Paul, if you guys fast forward to the New Testament now, there was this man named Paul. Paul plants churches all over the, the region. And he's, he's leading all these churches. He plants them and then he moves on. He plants another church. And he does all this thing. Paul writes back to one of the churches that he plants to explain to them this very powerful weapon against pride. And he gives it a name. So here's, here's, here's the thing. The antithesis to pride is humility. That if, if we want to combat pride, if we want to fight back pride in our life, then what has to increase in our life is this thing that's called humility. And so Paul writes back to the church in Philippi. And what we now have is the book of Philippians. And he says this. 
He starts his letter like this. He says, so if there is any encouragement, Philippians 2.1, if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy. If, in other words, here, Paul gives us four ifs. If there's any encouragement from being connected to Christ, if there is any love in you, if there is any, any participation of you with the Spirit, if you're connected to the Holy Spirit at all, if you have any affection in your body, if you are in any way, shape, or form sympathetic, then here's what you got to do. Complete my joy by being of the same mind. You see, humility and pride, it's a battle for your mind. That's why, that's why pride is a, a mind monster because it eats away at the thing that we need, humility, and it replaces itself with, with more pride. Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in, being in full accord and of one mind. There's mind again. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. So here's our dilemma. If, if pride is this dangerous thing that's nearly impossible for us to see, kind of like my experience with the electricity, and humility is our weapon against pride, then how do we increase in humility? What, what are some steps we can take? What are some things that we can do to become more humble, to increase the humility in our lives so that we have the ability to fight back and to push against the pride that so easily swells up in our lives? Well, I want to give you three ways based on what Paul says here in Philippians chapter 2. So if you're taking notes and you're looking for some things to write down, I'm going to give you three things that pride causes that humility helps us to circumvent. All right, so number one, if you're taking notes, pride causes us to be competitive. Pride makes us competitive. That's why Paul says this. Paul says in verse 3, we read it together, let's read it again. He says, do nothing, do nothing from selfish." Ambition or conceit. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. You see, pride at its essence, pride at the root of everything that it is, is competition and comparison. Think about it. Think about the things that you're proud of, even if you have some healthy pride. Not all pride is sinful, but, but some is. But, but if you're proud of anything, think about what makes you proud of something. What makes us proud, right? If I get uh, a new truck, Right? I would love a new truck. Like if, I, if I were to get a new truck, right, and I'm proud of my new truck, do you know what makes my truck or what makes me proud of my new truck? It's because it's better than my old truck. And in a lot of cases, if I get a new truck, my truck is probably better than your truck. And so in, my, in the comparison of my new flashy truck versus your old busted truck, like, now I get to be proud because my truck's better than yours. See, when there's comparison, it, it inspires competition. And I feel pride because there's a competition between me and what's next. I mean, think about it. If everybody in the world 
were equally rich and were equally smart and were equally good looking. Like if we were all the best, if we were all the best looking and we were all the richest and we were all the most intelligent, then could I be proud of my intelligence, my good looks, or my wealth? Or would it just be commonplace? Let me ask you a question. How many of you are, are proud about the seat that you're sitting in right now? None of you. You want to know why? Because everybody else is sitting in a seat just like yours. None of you thought, look at this chair. See that? Look, this is mine, my chair. Look at, look at the one I picked out. None of y'all thought that this morning. You want to know why? Because it's the same as everybody else's. You see, when there's no comparison, when there's no contrast, when one thing can't be better than another, there's no competition. So there, where there's no competition, there's no pride. Where there's no comparison, there's no pride. So here's what Paul tells us to do. Paul says, you want to be humble? You want to increase in humility? Then do nothing out of conceit. Never think anything that you, never think about how much better something is that you have than somebody else. Never, never compare. Never do anything out of selfish, I'm going to get something better for me. Because I want to be better than them. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit. If we eliminate competition, we eliminate pride. Number two, if you're taking notes, the second thing that pride causes. Pride causes us to think lowly of others. Pride causes us to think less of others. So Paul says this, Philippians chapter 2, the second half of verse 3, and into verse 4. Paul says, in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Let me ask you another question. I'm full of questions today, if you can't tell. Let me ask you another question. What makes a good group picture? So if, if you're in a group of people, let's say you, you all go to a, to a concert, to a ball game, or you're all just hanging out and there's, you know, five, six, seven of you and somebody's like, hey, and you get a stranger maybe to take a picture of you and your group. What makes that picture a good picture for you? Let me answer for you. If you look good in the picture. Everybody else in that picture could have their eyes closed, looking the wrong way, a booger hanging out of the nose, something crazy going on. But as long as you look good in a group picture, that's a good group picture according to you. As a matter of fact, who's the first person you look for in a group picture? When you find out that a picture's been taken of a group of people that you were in, who do you go looking for first? Do you go look to see if Ben looked good or if Karen had a nice smile on her face? No, you go looking for you. See, you see how easy pride gets in? Do you see how, do you see how it just kind of slides? You don't even know. All of us do it and none of us knew that was pride. But Paul says, in humility, here's what we do. We count others more significant than ourselves meaning if if I'm a really humble person when I look at a picture I'm looking at everybody but me to make sure they look good and if I look all jacked up hey no problem it's still a good picture because y'all look great in humility count others better than yourself let me ask you another question how much of your your thought life 
How many of the, the mental processes that go on in your head are about other people? How much do you think about the benefit and the well-being of others? Now, if you think, man, I don't know what Brandy thinks about me, but I hope that she likes me, that's still thinking about you. All right, that's not thinking about Brandy, that's thinking about you. How much do you consider others in your thoughts? You see, pride says, I am the most important, and everything else comes second. And it's natural. It's natural. Pride is of our natural selves. You were born prideful. That's why children are so selfish. That's why we have to teach children not to be selfish. We have to teach children not to think about themselves because we are born being selfish. It's natural. It's natural for us to think about ourselves and nobody else. But Paul says, don't do what's natural. Do what's supernatural. Do what's of God. And here's what's of God. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but to the interests of others. It's unnatural, but it's the more godly way. It's for us to consider others higher or before or above ourselves. Humility elevates other people. Pride elevates self. And pride causes us to think lowly of others. And number three, if you're taking notes. Pride causes us not only to think lowly of others, but to think much of ourselves. Pride causes us to think much of ourselves. And as we think much of ourselves, listen to me, church, we think less of God. When our way is, is better than his, when we, when we think so highly of it, hey, I can figure, remember David? I can, I can handle this. All right, I made a mistake. I can fix it. I can cover it. I can do this. I can, I can handle this. I can take care of this. I, 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 I. I. It makes us disobedient because we'd rather do things our own way instead of the ways that God would have us to go through life. Paul said it like this if we keep reading verses 5 through 8 in Philippians 2. Paul said, have this mind among yourselves which is yours in Christ Jesus. In other words, if you want to have a mind that's not like yours but a mind that's like Christ, here's what you have to do. Follow his example. Jesus who... Though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, look what he did. He humbled himself by becoming obedient. If you're tracking along in your Bible, I I encourage you to underline humbled himself and obedient. Those things are connected He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. You see, Jesus is our best example. He's always the best example of what humility looks like. Jesus being in the very form of God, being God, and in the form of God, humbled himself enough to become human. And not only did he just become human so that he could set an example for us, but in his obedience willingly went to the cross. 
obedient to the point of death on a cross. And he did that so that he could serve the humanity that he had to first become. You tracking with that? Jesus, in the highest possible place, stepped down and then down and then down, and then he became a human. And then not only did he stop at becoming like, gosh, how far did he have to fall to go from God to human? Like, that's an impossible leap. But not only did he just become human, but he became a human servant. And what kind of servant did he become? A servant who was obedient to the point of death. There's no greater example of service than that one would be willing to give their life for another. And Jesus did that for us. He's our example. And so we who in our humanity come up against this this immeasurably superior being that we call God are all at once reminded of how lowly we are if we're humble. And unless we know God as immeasurably superior to us, then we don't know God at all. And until we see ourselves as as nothing compared to the majesty and the splendor of our Heavenly Father, until we see Him as the end all, be all, above all, and in charge of all, and us as this lowly nothingness, until that is the contrast between ourselves and God, we are prideful. And in our pride, we will continue to be disobedient as we continue to think more of ourselves, making us think less of God. And you got you to understand this. God doesn't want us to be humble so that he will be elevated. God doesn't need us for that. He's God. He, he doesn't need anything from us, honestly. He's, he is all in one and completely perfect just the way he is. God doesn't want from us our humility so that he can somehow be proud himself and elevate. That's not, God's not concerned about his dignity. God, God's good. He's got himself covered because he's God. But here's what God does want. God doesn't want some, as much from us as he does for us. And, and God knows that we will never be able to relate to him in the way that he desires for us to be related to him until we understand his majesty in light of our fallibility. And until we get there, we're missing out on something that's so wonderful. C.S. Lewis, in his book, Mere Christianity, he said it like this. He said, the point is, he wants you to know him. He wants to give you himself. And he and you are two things of such a kind. That if you really get into any kind of touch with him, you will, in fact, be humble. If you touch God, if you get into any kind of contact with God, you will be humble. And not just humble, delightedly humble. Feeling the infinite relief of having once got rid of all the silly nonsense about your own dignity, which has made you restless and unhappy all your life. Anybody feel that? Anybody's pride calls them some restlessness and some unhappiness? Yeah. So here's, what, here's how he concludes. He says, 
He's trying to make you humble in order to make this moment possible. Where you realize that all your pride and all your dignity and all the things that you fought to increase your name and your stature and your standing and all these other things. All these things that you fought so hard for that keep you up at night, that make you struggle. Man, if we'll just realize that God is God and he's in control and we'll humble ourselves beneath him and worry more about him than our own pride and dignity. And there's a great relief. In that, I don't have to be great because he is. There's, there's relief in that. And C.S. Lewis says, that's the moment God is trying to get you to. He wants you to be able to let go of all that pride. And just let him be great. You don't have to be. If you are in church, and you are. I don't know if you knew that or not. Maybe somebody tricked you, like drug you here or something. I don't know if you knew where you were coming or not. But if you're in church, there's a really good chance that you're here because you desire to be more closely connected to God. And you come to, to learn and to hear and to figure out how you can better connect with your Heavenly Father. Here's what I need you to understand this morning. That the key to connecting to God most closely is to more completely eradicate pride from our lives because pride is a barrier between us and God. And as long as we're trying to do it on our own and do it our way and thinks that we, we know best and all of these other things, as long as we continue to fight that battle and run that race, we fall short of connecting with God in the way that God desires for us to connect with him. And here's the thing. That thing this between you and God, this pride barrier that all of us have to fight, this, this battle for our minds between humility and pride that's going on, that pride that you're trying to get rid of, you can't see it. You can't see it in yourself. It's nearly impossible to see. That's why Nathan had to get so created with David. But, but imagine, imagine with me. Imagine if David would have never had Nathan. Then we wouldn't have Psalm 51. You should go and read it. Psalm 51. David, because of Nathan, because of this, this close friend that came to David and showed him his pride, showed him his sin, David writes this beautiful psalm of repentance where he just pours himself out before God in all of his openness and transparency. God, I am horrible. I'm so, so sorry for all that I've done. God, search me. Find any other thing in me that displeases you. And God, get rid of it. Like, we don't get that psalm if David doesn't have Nathan. And there's a lot of us in the room right now. You can't see your pride either. You need a Nathan. You need a friend. You need someone that can see what you can't see. We talked last week about the blind spots in our life. You need somebody that can see in your life what you can't see. You know, last weekend, I had a friend on the outside of the crawl space um, I would have much rather had a friend in the crawl space. We'll talk about that later, Jesse. But, but as I grabbed onto that wire last week and it refused to let go, I got scared. 
I told my wife, I think it's the most scared I've ever been because I didn't know how I was going to get off of that wire. And how much better would I have been with a friend right beside of me that could have pulled me off the moment that I got connected? See, we talk all the time here about the value of our small groups. We call them connect groups. Let me tell you what you need this morning if you don't have it already. You need a connect group. You need a group of people right around you, talking to you, ministering to you, hearing from you each and every single week. You need some people in your life that have the relational capital with you to be able to say, hey, man, I I see some pride in you. And and you you need to have somebody in your life, somebody in your connect group that you could then say, without getting angry and offended. Thank you. Thank you for calling out in me what I couldn't see. Because the last thing that I want in my life is pride. Pride that keeps me from connecting with my heavenly father in the way that I was created and designed and the way that I thrive and I desire so much to connect with God. Like that's the only way that we can ever thrive in this life is to be as completely connected with him as possible. And the more we closely connect with him, the more that we're going to thrive in our lives. And if, that, if there's pride that's keeping me from that, if this monster in my own mind is eating away at me from the inside out and I don't have somebody to pull me out, then I'm never going to experience the fullness of life that Jesus spoke about. Jesus said there's an enemy that came to steal and kill and destroy. He'd love nothing more than for you to remain prideful. But Jesus said, I have come that they may have life and have it abundantly. The abundant life that Jesus calls us to is only possible by following him as our example. Being humble, submitting to our heavenly father in that humility. So let me ask you again this morning. Who is that person in your life? Who are you so closely connected to that they have the relational capital to call out your pride? There's a good chance it's not your spouse. Because if you're a husband or a wife in this room, you know this to be true. There's sometimes you can't hear your spouse. They fuss all the time. You can't hear it anymore. It's like white noise. It's truth. We talked about that in the marriage series. It's truth. You can't hear your spouse. Let me tell you who you can hear. Somebody in your connect group. You could hear them, and I guarantee you'd probably respond. And how many of us wouldn't love to respond to a challenge to remove pride in our life so that we can more closely connect with our Heavenly Father? Would you pray with me? Father, this morning as we examine this thing in our lives called pride, God, would you help us to see it? And God, we know that it's something that's going to be nearly impossible for us to see in ourselves. And so, God, I ask that you would place the people in the lives of each and every one of us that would help us remove this thing that keeps us from connecting with you. God, we need that. We need them. 
And so, Father, we trust you and your great love for us to send those people into our lives. And, God, I thank you for, for this ministry at Fusion City that has made small groups such a priority. God, I don't know where I would be without the people in my, in my connect group. And I know that there are hundreds of people in this room right now that would echo the same sentiment. God, I don't know what I would do without those people in my life. So, Father, challenge us, encourage us, convict us to do what's right. To connect with you in a way that, only, that we only can through the influence of others in our lives. God, we need it. We ask you to help us find it and for you to provide it. We love you, Father. We thank you for the hope and the peace that we have in Jesus. The example that he gave us for how to live in humility and obedience to you. God, help us to do it more completely. And we pray it all in his name, the name above every other name, the name of your son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.